0: Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, That bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain. And be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's take it together. Well, hello, welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast, where we go ad fontes to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is, as He has revealed Himself to us. My name is Tyler, and we are continuing to work through the book of Job, piece by piece, verse by verse. And we'll be reading um, through a pretty interesting section of scripture, a section that has challenged many people far more learned than me. But I will do my best to share what I believe God has shown me in the text, knowing full well that there is more to be gleaned from the word of God than what I can get in a week. So, without further ado, let us read verses 6 through 12 of chapter 1. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. A lot of fun stuff in there. That is a hard text to grapple through, but we will attempt to do so today. Starting right off the bat with verse 6. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And so right off the bat, we are given a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, into, I guess you could say, the heavenly realm. We are given a peek into heaven into the inner workings of a realm that is hidden from the human eye. And it says that the sons of God, who I believe to be angels, and Satan equally come before the Lord. And that that is a the term Satan is not used often in the Old Testament. He's kind of a minor character as far as direct occurrences and appearances in the Old Testament. That we only have him on three occasions definitively. There are places you could see allusions to Satan, but definitively we have Satan described in the Garden of Eden, in Job, and in um, Ezekiel. There is a passage in Ezekiel that speaks to that as well, but this is the majority of what we have with the phrase in Hebrew, the Satan, the accuser. In the Old Testament is Job. Job deals more with the character of Satan than perhaps any other book of the Old Testament, not to be outdone by Jesus who talked about Satan more than anyone else in the Bible. But we're given a peek into a character who in the Old Testament is somewhat obscure. There's not a whole lot of attention given to Satan, but Job does some interesting um, character development, if I could use that phrase, when it comes to Satan, that he is presented to us, he is um, communicated to us through a dialogue with God. And one of the unique things about the Old Testament is that it makes things complicated. That when it comes to the way God communicates himself, he often does so in ways that make us ask questions. That God is, for every occurrence of thus saith the Lord in the Old Testament, you also have an example of God doing things that doesn't seem to make sense to us, that throughout the Old Testament, God is comfortable, it seems, communicating himself as though he needs to ask questions. He needs to go places and check things out and see what's going on. And we know that God is all-knowing. God is omnipresent. <clears throat> These are quite well established established through the whole body of Scripture, but God is Pleased to communicate himself to us in almost human terms. And I believe that is for our benefit, not so much his, but that God makes himself known to us in ways that we can relate to. <clears throat> so likewise, we have a dialogue with Satan. And do I think this actually happened? Yes. Yes, I do. But I believe that the reason this conversation happens is for our benefit, that we might learn about God Through the questions he asks Satan and the kinds of answers he draws out of him. And so right off the bat, the Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? Which is reminiscent of Genesis, when God was walking in the cool of the day in the garden and asked Adam, Where are you? Not because he didn't know, but because God was drawing something out. Through the question, it's not just a question; it's a pointed question. Um, Socrates, a a philosopher in ancient Greece, was very good at asking questions that got people thinking. So much so that the the act of doing so has often been called the Socratic method in realms of like counseling or philosophy. Um, R.C. Sproul was big on the quote Socratic method when he would discuss theology. And so, prior to Socrates, you have God asking pointed questions, intentional questions. So, the Lord talks to Satan. <clears throat> the Lord who knows all asked Satan, where have you come from? <clears throat> and in that question, we also have revealed to us that Satan is not everywhere. That while God is omnipresent, to use the big, the big word, Satan is not, because he roams through the earth. He walks around on it. Um, Peter reiterates this by saying that he prowls the earth as a lion, seeking one he may devour. He is not omnipresent. Right off the bat, we are introduced to the ontological differences, that is, the differences of the beingness between God and Satan. we're not talking about two characters that are just equal in every way that this is some kind of equally matched um, karate fight when we talk about the when we talk about spiritual warfare when we talk about the battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness it is not equally matched that there is a massive difference in God and Satan in a substantial way <clears throat> because Satan cannot be everywhere. He is not omnipresent as God is. He is roaming through the earth and walking around on it. That while God is comfortable communicating us to us as though he needs to find things out, Satan actually does. He actually does need to travel from place to place. The Pilgrim's Progress, an ancient... Uh, <clears throat> I say ancient, but it's only a couple hundred years old. But it's an interesting little book. It's an allegory of the Christian life about this man and Christian. And he goes on this journey to the heavenly city, the city of light. And throughout this journey, he goes on through many trials, many challenges and tribulations, but he only encounters the Satan figure directly on one occasion. Why? Because if Satan is, in, is doing things in Australia, he can't be in Africa <clears throat> because he roams through the earth seeking one he may devour. So, the first thing that God shows us about himself is that he is everywhere, and Satan is not everywhere. The second thing that God felt the need to bring to our attention, that God was pleased to bring to our, the forefront of our minds, is in the second question. <clears throat> Have you considered my servant Job? <clears throat> Have you considered my servant Job? which implies that Satan is not all-knowing. He does not know everything. There are things he doesn't know. There are things that don't occur to him. And so the Lord has asked Satan to be as painfully literal with the Hebrew as I can figure with my limited understanding. Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? (coughs) Have you applied with the centermost of your being because in Hebrew culture, the, the thinking organ was the heart, not the head. So, they thought with their center. <clears throat> Have you applied your, the center of your being to my servant Job? Have you set your heart upon him? Why? Because no one on on earth is like him. A man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. That God is affirming to the Satan who cannot be everywhere that there are things he doesn't know because Job is not like anyone else on the earth a man of perfect integrity who feareth God and escheweth evil and Satan answered according to his character does Job fear God for nothing haven't you placed a hedge around him and his household and everything he owns you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. And things have gone well for Job, but does he fear God for nothing? To quote the King James, does he fear heareth God for naught? Is it all in vain? <clears throat> Is there any reason for Job to fear God? Because haven't you placed a hedge around him and his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. The accusation of the accuser, because that is his nature, is the accuser. He makes accusations. He stirs things up. The accusation he makes is that Job, quote, fears God because he fears the consequences if he doesn't. He doesn't so much fear God as if he fears the consequence that he's playing the system that he's working the economy here that he does what's right because God rewards him verse 11 but stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face and that sentence is interesting because he's inviting God to stretch out his hand and strike everything job owns. Because Satan does not have the power to do it himself. (laughs) Satan is not omnipotent. that He does not have all the power. So instead he is inviting God to do it instead. Because Satan cannot do it of his own volition. He is restricted in a very real sense. Verse twelve. Very well, the Lord told Satan, "Everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself." So Satan left the Lord's presence. The reality is that Job is—he <clears throat> doesn't know any of this is going. He does not know about this conversation. But there is a very interesting conversation that's taken place between God and Satan that has led to, that has had direct impact on the future of Job. (laughs) Because Satan does not have the power to strike everything he owns, and he invited God to do likewise. And God responds by saying, He is in your power by giving that permission to Satan to do X, Y, and Z because Satan was bound up in that. That he could not act on Job without permission, because he is, in fact, on a leash. And we can continue to rack our brains, and will continue to do so through this book, as to how this can happen. How does a God who is merciful and kind and loving give Satan permission to steal, kill, and destroy? That is a question that naturally comes up in the book of Job. That is honestly one of the reasons many people turn to the book of Job. Job tends to be a book that people read when they are suffering. How does a good God allow suffering? How does a good God invite suffering or decree it, or whatever language you want to use, how does this happen? <laughs> because in a very real sense, there is kind of a two-fold thing going on. That, On one hand, God has allowed it. God has brought it into fruition. God has given permission. But it's also taking place through layers of means. That while well, Satan's invitation was God strike him down, God responds by saying he is in your power that there are multiple layers of causes in here and it gets it gets complicated and i don't think our minds can truly understand the whole picture here <laughs> but what's demonstrated in this portion of job 1 is that we have two characters that are introduced the satan and yahweh the accuser and the lord and they are not equally matched. This is not a... a There's not a duality here where you've got a good God and a bad God or anything like that. We can get into some pretty shady territory with some of these ideas we have of Satan. But the picture that the Bible paints is almost comical sometimes. More comical than the pitchfork-toting guy that runs around in red tights. Because we have... God asks Satan, "Have you considered my servant job?" and Satan has the audacity because he got it for free down at the Dollar General with 15 dollars off of, off of his purchase. He had the audacity to say, "I think you miss something i don 't think you've got all the facts on this guy he's got he's pulled the wool over your eyes." The kind of audacity to say such a thing to God is astounding. Hilariously audacious. <laughs> and God kind of entertains it. That He doesn't just come out and, and scold him. He says, Really? Tell me more. That's that's the, the attitude he seems to take in this text. And it's how do you how do you piece through that? <clears throat> it means that my life is held in God's hand, and that nothing befalls me aside from his sovereignty. And sometimes his sovereignty hurts. Sometimes his sovereignty involves other means. Because just as it's, it says in Jonah, that the sailors threw him over the water. But then in the next chapter, Jonah attributes being cast into the sea to God. Sometimes causes are more complicated than that. Sometimes real life is complicated. and so as we move into the narrative of the book of Job as we move through the drama that is the first two chapters of Job (laughs) we see this battle of sorts that's going on in the heavens over Job and the outcome is sure the outcome is is known (laughs) and yet we are still watching this play out why? because It shows us that there is there is a God and there is a Satan who are equally invested in this man named Job. That while God has said he is my servant Job, the Satan is also determined to turn him against God. He is bound to determine to destroy this good thing that we've been introduced to in the last five verses. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. And he is out to steal, kill, and destroy, as it says in John 10.10. And we as believers today, we may not suffer as Job did, but we have an accuser. We have an adversary, the same adversary, the same accuser as Job. And oftentimes, his tactics are the same. That he twists things. He makes things look differently than they are. That you have placed a hedge around him. You have blessed the work of his hands, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will curse you to your face. The only reason Job honors you is because you reward him. And the challenge of Job... is that God's ways sometimes don't make sense to us. But nonetheless, God is still in control. Because Satan could not move on this desire to destroy Job apart from the permission of God. That In a very real sense, God gave him permission to do this. And so as we transition into the book of Job, that is the understanding that there are two parties involved. They're not equally matched, but one has given a degree of power to the other, but they're still unequally matched. <laughs> and this will continue to play out, not just in Job, but even outside of Job, moving to the New Testament. We go to Revelation 12, and we see this battle, a different kind of battle that's similar, play out through imagery. <clears throat> Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who was going to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1260 days (laughs) then war broke out in heaven Michael and his angels fought against the dragon the dragon and his angels also fought but he could not prevail and there was no place for them in heaven any longer so the great dragon was thrown out the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan This is the text that identifies the serpent in the Garden of Eden as the devil. The Old Testament doesn't come out and say that, but Revelation makes it abundantly clear that the serpent in the first book is the dragon in the last. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. (laughs) They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, who is Christ, and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you with great fury because he knows his time is short. As New Testament believers, this is a present reality. The dragon has been thrown down from heaven. He has been temporarily defeated. His time is short, but the lamb has triumphed over the dragon. And the people of God, those who are called, beloved, and kept by Jesus Christ conquered him by the blood of Christ and by the word of their testimony by the word of their testimony of who Christ is who Christ is in their lives the truth of that is by which we are made conquerors (laughs) so what do we do with the text of Job, how do we apply this? We rejoice because the lamb has triumphed over the dragon. Because the Satan character of Job 1 is the conquered dragon of Revelation 12. Because God is more powerful than Satan. Whatever whatever Satan does, he is on a leash. He is restricted. He is under another authority. That is why he presents himself to the Lord in verse 6. He has no other alternative because he is a being that is bound to God. He is under this in subjection to God. He is under God's authority then and now. And Christ who put on flesh and dwelt among us, lived the perfect life, kept the whole law, died in the place of sinners intentionally. Why? So that we would be we would die to our sins and live unto righteousness in him and by that we become a part of the conquering of that dragon the dragon is being slayed not by our power but by Christ at work in us in making us his people day by day, moment by moment decision by decision we are Christ's and we are heirs with Christ (laughs) so when Christ conquers we are heirs with the conqueror. As my friend Rob Knipe likes to say, Jesus is king. Go live in the victory of Christ. Go share the gospel of Christ. And speak the words of Christ. Because the lamb has triumphed over the dragon over the dragon. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds, united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless, Matthew 4-4.